Good morning. Uh, the Bible reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, and it is on page 1027 of the Bibles in front of you or behind you. 1027. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we stand, let us pray. Lord, we ask humbly that you would still our hearts now. Enable us each one to sense the nearness of your presence, the gentle prompting of your Holy Spirit. And as we seek together to consider your word in Scripture, 
we do pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and teach us afresh to bask in the wonder of the Christmas message. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. It really is a great joy, a great privilege to have this opportunity to share with you. And I would be very grateful if you have a Bible, either your own or one in the chair in front of you. And if you'd like to turn with me to page 1027, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. There are, of course, at this stage, only six days to go, and uh, I'm not sure whether you're on a rising level of stress uh, or perhaps a rising level of excitement. might depend which generation you find yourself in. I heard a lovely story, actually, talking of excitement, uh, of uh, a father who went to his uh, little daughter a few weeks before uh, Christmas, and he said, darling, it's coming up to Christmas. Have you thought about what you might like to ask for? And the little girl thought, she said, well, Daddy, what I'd really, really love is a little brother. And to her amazement, just a couple of days before Christmas, her mum came back from hospital with this beautiful, bouncing baby boy. She was thrilled. Following year, same thing happened. Father goes to daughter and said, darling, it's coming up to Christmas. Have you thought again what you might like to ask for? And she said, well, Daddy, I I have been thinking about it. And if it wouldn't be too much trouble for Mummy, I'd really quite like a pony this year. (laughs) There's lots of excitement. But, of course, this particular year, there's also been quite a deficit, hasn't there? And I think one of the impacts that we've all been aware of with the pandemic is that nativity plays were disallowed, weren't they? And um, I think the last time I saw a nativity play was probably in this building a number of years ago. It was, uh, we were all seated in the round, do you remember? And the, the performance was in the center of the church. It was superbly organized by Ollie and Neil and others. But here's the question. What cast would you actually need in order to do the nativity play properly? What characters? Well, Mary, yes. Joseph. Usually a baby Jesus. Most nativity plays make use of a doll of some sort. Uh, There need to be, uh, I think, animals, whether uh, children dressed as animals, stuffed animals. Sometimes you even uh, have the courage to have live animals. Uh, A few angels dressed in tinsel with wings and so on. Some shepherds. And, of course, the obligatory three wise men. And perhaps with a list such as that, we might be tempted to think we've got everyone we need. But actually, if we listen carefully to the biblical account of the nativity, most plays that happen on the basis of those characters have actually left out one of the central figures. Obviously, the whole Bethlehem event takes place in order to fulfill prophecy, prophecy that had been given hundreds of years earlier. But here's the thing. 
what was it in particular at that point in time that caused Mary and Joseph to have to go to the city of David? Well, look with me again at what Luke tells us. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so everyone went to his own town to register. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. The reference you see to Caesar Augustus is not, in Luke's mind, some incidental or accidental detail. Far from it. If you leave Caesar Augustus out of the nativity, the whole story is robbed of some of its greatest impact. Why do I say that? It's because what Christmas really confronts us with, you see, is this cosmic clash between two opposing kingdoms. On the one hand, there is everything that is represented by Caesar Augustus. He's the emperor of Rome. He's the figurehead of the global superpower, the most powerful man on the planet. If he clicked his fingers, the whole world was expected to stand to attention and fall into line. That's why they have to go for a census. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have this tiny infant, this baby of Bethlehem, this child in the manger. The one who arrives in abject poverty. And Luke tells us he's wrapped in cloths. And because there's no room, he's born in a stable. The contrast, you see, could not be more stark. And it's as you begin to explore the contrast between these opposing worldviews that you begin to discover some of the wonderful significance of what Christmas is trying to tell us. So let me suggest we, 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 we dig a little further into this amazing nativity under three simple headings. The first of which is this, that the baby of Bethlehem must be God. Must be God. It's a staggering claim already, but let's see how we might establish this. You see, if we were living in the first century AD, and if we found ourselves back then as citizens of the Roman Empire under Caesar Augustus, we were expected to believe that he, the emperor, was like one of the gods. If we ever met him, which was unlikely, we would be expected to fall down and worship and to address him as Lord and Savior. 
And in the light of that, listen then again to the message of the angel to the shepherds in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appears to them out in the fields. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They're terrified. Of course they are. But the angel says to them, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah. These, you see, are the titles that elsewhere in Scripture are reserved only for God himself. Jehovah, the covenant king of Israel, the Lord of all lords. And so, you see, the first wonder of Christmas is to drive home this point to us that the the one who has been sent is none other than God. Charles Wesley, in one of his lesser known hymns, Carol in fact, put it like this, let heaven and earth combine, angels and men agree to praise in song divine the incarnate deity our God contracted to a span this size incomprehensibly made man it's wonderful isn't it if you take it to heart and as you read on in Luke's gospel in the chapters that follow that deity that Godhead takes on substance. As the infant Christ grows into manhood, Luke records for us his ability to heal disease, to cast out demons, to confront religious authority, to calm the storms of nature, even to raise the dead. Read it for yourself. Those things, they're all of humanity's greatest enemies. Disease, evil, death. And Caesar Augustus cannot do anything about them. But this Jesus Christ can. Or again, think of his teaching that also follows in the Gospel of Luke. His parables. His incomparable wisdom. I love these words that are coming up on the slide of an American uh, theologian, Bernard Ram. Look what they say. No other man's words have the appeal of Jesus' words. Because no other man can answer fundamental human questions as Jesus answered them. They're the kind of words and the kind of answers we would expect God To give. Do you believe that? And you see, if ever there were a hammer blow against human pride, against any instinct within us that makes us think we can find our own way through life, then surely it is here. People have spent lifetimes trying to find out how can we make it towards knowing God. They've tried through science and knowledge and nature and 
inward journeys into the self. But the message of Christmas, you see, the true nativity, pulls a rug from under all of that. Where is God to be found? In this baby of Bethlehem. I love the story of the the little boy who got a piece of paper and some crayons and sat at the kitchen table and he was about to draw a picture and his mum who was working at the other side of the kitchen said, darling, what are you going to draw today? He said, mummy, I think I'm going to draw a picture of God. And she said, well, that's lovely, but nobody really knows what he looks like. And he said, well, mummy, they will know by the time I finish my picture. And Jesus, you see, that's what he's saying to us. If you want to know what God is like, look here. The baby of Bethlehem must be God. Secondly, the baby of Bethlehem meets our deepest need. So let's go back again to this contrast with Caesar Augustus. As emperor, he was understood to be the great provider, the kind of focal point of imperial identity from whom everything flowed to all of his subjects through those under his authority, such as Quirinius. And once again, you see, the true nativity, according to the Gospel of Luke, is insisting that the the true truth is elsewhere. Just a few verses earlier than our passage in chapter 1, Mary, already pregnant, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And she sings a song of joy when they meet, which we sometimes call the Magnificat. She talks and rejoices in how much she's blessed. And then she speaks prophetically of this child that she's carrying. His mercy, she says, will extend to those who fear him. He will scatter the proud. He will bring down rulers from their thrones like Caesar Augustus. He will lift up the humble. He will fill the hungry with good things. He will send the rich away empty. And it's no surprise then, is it, that actually the angels tell the shepherds, this child is the saviour. And when he's born, they name him Jesus. They'd already been told that that was to be his name. Because he will save his people from their sin. I'm looking around this morning. I'm amongst friends and and, and we all have many different needs. As people, we need... Love, we need warmth, we need protection, we need a sense of purpose, we need some resilience, we long for peace, we need enough money to get by. 
But actually, friends, those needs are, are only like the outer layers of the onion. Peel them away, each one. And each of us will realize our deepest need at the core of our being is to know forgiveness. It's to know that we can be made right with our creator. It's to know that we can be saved and delivered from the eternal consequence of our sin. And it's interesting, again, just a few chapters later, this Jesus, when he's grown up, on one occasion, some people bring a paralyzed man and lay the man in front of him. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. At which point there is uproar, blasphemy, how dare he? But Jesus knows what they're thinking and what they're mumbling. And so he goes on to say, well, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell the paralytic man, get up and walk? Well, of course, on the one hand, it's probably easier to say your sins are forgiven. It may be blasphemous, but nobody would be any the wiser. But... So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And that's exactly what he did. It only makes sense if the one speaking those words is God. Because only God has the authority to pronounce forgiveness in that way. And at the end of the gospel, that's precisely why even as he hangs on the cross, paying a once-for-all debt that none of us could even contemplate, Luke tells us, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And unless and until each of us come to receive that forgiveness. The true nativity will actually challenge us that we remain guilty. So, where are we? The baby in Bethlehem must be God. Great news. This baby in Bethlehem meets our deepest need. And, lastly, this baby of Bethlehem will make us choose. I would imagine for all of us these next days and weeks will be full of choices about cards and food, gifts, and then which ones to take back in January. But actually there's a much more significant choice, isn't there? The essential thing And this is what I believe from my heart God is wanting to say to each of us out of his great love and mercy this morning is that you and I must make up our minds with regard to this Jesus Christ. 
the shepherds, of whom we read, they listened to the message of the angels. They went to discover, and they, they, they found everything just as they had been told. It was true. It made sense of their whole understanding of life. And if it was true then, I would suggest it remains true today. And therefore we are all, all of us, confronted with a choice. To whom this Christmas will each of us pledge our allegiance? Are we still trapped in the worldview of Caesar Augustus? Are we still being lured in the direction of everything that his kingdom represents? The values of godlessness, an experience of emptiness, a promise of much that doesn't deliver? Or will we Open our hearts afresh to receive this gift that God offers to us. The one who is both Lord and Savior. The one who is God himself come among us. He doesn't promise us an easy life if we choose that. But he does promise to be with us and one day ask God to welcome us. So let me end with some words of a fellow countryman of ours, C.S. Lewis. I invite you to consider this and then I'm going to suggest that we bow our heads in prayer. Lewis says this, A man who was merely a man And said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let us pray.